Good morning. Good morning. So we are in chapter five of John today, and um, dude, we got we got the Greek New Testament cracked open. We got the NIV and all of its flaws cracked open. We've got my notes, which I can barely read. We're ready. This is this is this is great. So, well, some of most of you, I think, that I'm seeing here have been with us at least one or two weeks through John. What have you learned so far? And I like how people are huddling around the table without the mic. I noticed that. <laughs> I think we learned a lot of stuff we didn't know. Okay, what did you learn that you didn't know, Lorna? <laughs> you might have that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Who, who, is, who is the author? Who is he writing it to? And what are his views compared with maybe the other gospel writers? <clears throat> yeah, he's probably a Jew because he's explaining Jewish customs to his audience. Yeah, it's kind of more of a. It's more than a, just a historical yeah. account yeah. of Jesus. It's also he brings an argument as to who Jesus was and yes. why it's important to you know have him be your savior. Nice, and and. Who is Jesus to this author, and why is it important that he's our Savior? <clears throat> what's, dif- what's so different about John? What's to prove that Jesus is the Son of God? Oh my gosh, that's exactly it. Oh my goodness. Gold star Angela <laughs> right off the bat. You know what? That is going to be a big, big point today as we get into John chapter 5. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and read John chapter 5. We're going to break it up. We're going to do one through 15. Who would like to read that for me today? Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethsaida with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't sit, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath, so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, they said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as this, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Thank you. Can you uh, go back and read verse 4 for me? Sure. (laughs) See what I'm doing? Yeah, yeah. This is a really good point. So most of you may or may not have verse 4 listed in in your Bible. This is an excellent illustration of how the Bible was put together. So let's just do a real quick recap. You're like, wait a minute. 
there's a problem. No, this is not an error. This is this is actual actually real. So <clears throat> there were authors who wrote the original gospels, letters, and books of the Bible in the very beginning. So here we have the Gospel of John, as it was written by the author who we attribute to the Apostle John. That is lost to history, folks. We do not have that copy. Well, not copy. We do not have that original manuscript. Okay? It's gone. <clears throat> Over time, that manuscript got copied. It got sent around to the different churches. It got copied. It got edited. <clears throat> the earliest manuscripts we have today, we have fragments from the second century. Now, that alone is remarkable. <clears throat> fragments. Okay, we have little pieces. We don't have complete manuscripts until much later. And all of a sudden, we go back in history, and from the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries, we have <coughs> manuscripts. However, <laughs> they're not all exactly the same. Why would they not all be exactly the same? Copies of copies of copies. Oral, oral. of oral of yes. copies of copies of yes. copies. Yes, yes. So we have, <coughs> we have scribal error. Sorry, it happens. It's a human thing. We have a mix of oral and written accounts. Look, I'm sorry, but you can't just go Google it in the first century and get the original manuscript that was loaded into, into the internet. You have what people have heard and seen, and they have fragments, and some of them don't have the whole thing. So they're, put, they're piecing it together from what they've heard. The church over in, in um, you know, this community has an entire copy, but we don't, so we're going to piece together what we have. And what we finally have, when we finally start seeing the entire book of John, is 95% the same, which is in itself remarkable. Don't get me wrong. There is not a single scholar on this planet, no matter whether he's an atheist or a Christian, who will disagree with this statement that the, the similarities that we have between manuscripts of the books of the Bible are remarkably similar. Okay? Some books of the Bible have more variation than others. The book of Mark is one of them. It has, I think, of, among all of the books of the New Testament, the most variation. <clears throat> John is somewhere in the middle. Now, the variation tends to come in little pieces. It tends to come in verses here and there that don't seem to appear. John chapter 5, verse 4 is one of those. The earliest manuscripts we have do not have John chapter 5, verse 4 in it. Later, so this is, this is the 2nd to 4th century, let's say. So once we get to the 5th century and beyond, now all of a sudden, John plus. <laughs> yeah. You see what I'm, I'm doing here? Some of them, some of them start to have John 5, verse 4 in it, okay? Now, what does the critical scholar today do? They go back and they say, of all of the knowledge that we have of the, of the New Testament, let's reconstruct the history. As they go back in time, they try and say, well, the earliest pieces we have don't have verse 4 in it. We thus conclude the original manuscript, which we do not have today, likely did not have John 5, verse 4 in it. Now, does that mean that the Bible is wrong? No. Why? It's telling us where God is. Uh, what's the word I want? I can't think of the word I want. <clears throat> well, there's a preponderance of the evidence that suggests 
if it's 95 or more percent accurate, then we can rest assured that it's pretty accurate. If it doesn't change the mm -hmm. actual context of what the meaning is trying to say. You'll, you'll hear terms thrown around of the inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures. If you are an evangelical, Bible-believing Christian, you, like me, probably believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. <clears throat> and God does not make mistakes. I believe God does not make mistakes based on the preponderance of evidence. <clears throat> when Jesus was born in the manger, the three wise men didn't come and say, oh, look how pretty he is. And then all of a sudden, ah, this Bible shows up and he just hands it to them and they start, wow, the whole Bible is here. It didn't work like that, folks. It didn't work like that. The Bible is the physical representation of what human beings have put together based on the infallible word of God. What does the word of God mean? <clears throat> you have to understand, words have meaning. Words are just a representation of meaning. You didn't think you were getting an English lesson today, but you are. <laughs> These are ideas. These are concepts. Human beings have the capacity to understand ideas. But <clears throat> the physical words that we choose to represent those ideas are physical. We have words to represent them. Words. 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 Those words are imperfect, folks. They're written by humans. They're physical. One language doesn't exactly correspond to another. That's why I have the Greek New Testament here. Why? I'm trying to get back to what the original authors of the New Testament at the very beginning were trying to say and understand that in light of thousands of years of humans reinterpreting it and retranslating that into other languages. These are imperfect, but the ideas are perfect. As far as I'm concerned, the word of God means the ideas, the concepts of God are inerrant. What God is trying to say and what he's trying to do is without error. But we as humans, in our attempt to understand the perfection of God, have, from time to time, made errors. The Bible is full of things like scribal errors. But I believe, and I think this is true, that over history, the humans who have tried to put the Bible together in all of its forms and to copy the written word have tried as hard as they can in prayer and focus with the Holy Spirit, tried to keep it as error-free as possible, but errors do creep in from time to time. A lot of things that scribal errors happen are things like mistranslations. Remember, <clears throat> people are not typing the original text into Microsoft Word. They are writing it like Brian Freeman does here. How many of you can read all of the words up here? <laughs> Oh, well, you, you, he wants the gold star. He's so cute. Look, this is what happens. Now, let's say I've written this, and I give it to a, another scribe, or I die, and the next scribe who comes along has to copy this because this is getting worn out. The original copies, folks, were, were passed around. <laughs> they were held. Brindley is like, dude, this is not standing for this. <laughs> They wear out. So then the next guy has to come along and go, well, i got to read this and i got to copy it, so I'm going to try my hardest. Well, I'm not exactly sure what some of these words are, so they try their best. And in some cases, yes, it does happen, especially in the Old Testament in counting. Numbers. The numbers and the counts of the Old Testament, if you go and you compare things like the books of Kings, First and Second Kings, with the books of First and Second Chronicles, there's a number of places where the counts of the number of men in battle and things like that are a little different. 
it's attributed to scribal error, where the mark of a Hebrew script, it, very subtle differences can change numbers. That's what I'm getting at here, is that over time, and with the best of intentions, sometimes error can creep in. John 5, verse 4, talks about why this pool is important. When were numbers assigned to yeah. verses? Later. <clears throat> yeah, so part of me thinks, well, why, why was there ever a gap? <clears throat> why was there a gap? Why do you go from three, <clears throat> verse 3 to verse 5 if okay. numbers yeah. were... Now, in this case, it turns out that the Bible, the original Greek New Testament, the author starts with the very first word. So, in this case, um, it would have been N for in the beginning. <clears throat> and they literally write without breaks, without periods, without spaces between words, all of the letters put together in a series until they get to the very last chapter of John and the very last word. Now, Ancient writers did that because they didn't have a lot of money for pen and ink, and they also didn't have a lot of reason to use all of the elaborate punctuation that we use today to make sure the meaning is very clear. However, the original authors and readers of this would have interpreted that very easily. John 5 verse 4 is just a sentence of Greek that appears all of a sudden here later stuck in to other continuous lines of Greek. So although the number wasn't there, the sentence just suddenly appears. Like DNA, if you want to think of it, DNA, your DNA doesn't have numbers. It's just one long continuous streak of letters. All of a sudden, if you want to think of this in DNA terms, all of a sudden there's an insertion, right? But what Bible has verse four? Like why didn't they just go from three to four? Three they to do. Like, so what I'm saying is, yep. if, you take, if you find some original manuscripts from the, like the fifth century, Where? that's in there. And it says something along the lines of, an angel went down and stirred the water, and whoever went in first was healed. Okay? So, at some point, and I believe, out of the goodness of the best intentions, a writer later in the 5th century is trying to explain what this freaking means. Because if you were, assume that wasn't there in the beginning, which we do, the original... Jews would have understood exactly what this meant. They would have known that people went to the pool of Bethsaida so that they could be healed by walking into the water, getting into the water, as soon as the water was stirred and presumably by an angel. They would have known that. Now by the fifth century, how many people would have known that? The temple is long gone. <clears throat> Jerusalem is no longer really the seat of any kind of Jewish worship. And all the customs are gone. So now an author comes in and goes, people don't have any clue what this means. Why? There's no context here. So probably with the best of intention, an author in the 5th century tries to insert the reason why to explain it. Now, it's in the King James Version. In some, some modern versions, you will see it. And you can read it. You can certainly Google it. Without it, it just doesn't make sense. That's kind of There's the thing. There's a bunch of lame people yeah. laying there. And then Jesus came to this guy, and the guy said, there's no one to put me in the pool. Yep. Why would you put him in the pool? Mm -hmm. well, if you don't know the waters are stirred. I'm going to tell you, there's another way to look at this. In, in antiquity, there was a town called Laish in northern Israel. For, 
for generations it was called Laish. At some point, the Israelites, when they took over Canaan, decided to sack Laish, basically destroy it, rebuild it from the ground up. They renamed it Dan. Okay? Now, <clears throat> that didn't come until much later. However, this is probably, you know, somewhere around 1200, 1100 BC. However, if you read things like Genesis, the author of Genesis never referred to it as, as Dan because it wasn't Dan, but an editor later went back to re-edit Genesis and Exodus, the early books, way before this was ever called Dan, and they called it Dan. Why did they do that? Continuity. No, Continuity? What are you talking about? So they knew what they were talking about. I, as a, a person who has never heard of the word Laish, would have no idea where Laish was. Oh, you mean Dan. Oh, I know exactly what that is. Same is true of the author of John. Remember, I told you, he doesn't refer to the Sea of Galilee as a Sea of Galilee. What does he call it? Tiberius. Yes. Why did he do that? Why did the author of John call the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberius? Well, they're writing for present day, not for people that used to live there 300 years ago. Was that a sin to do that? No. This is a good one. I would posit it is not a sin to take the Holy Scriptures, like what I'm doing here. Look, when we translate this into English, this isn't the original word. This has been changed, folks. I'm sorry, you can't take a one-to-one -one translation of the original Greek or Hebrew into English. It just doesn't work. There is no such thing as a word that means, all words in Greek mean exactly the same thing as one word in English. Now, the translators of all the Bibles you have in front of you made an attempt to say, we are going to make an English translation that flows basically one-to-one -one word, one-to-one -one verse, one-to-one -one chapter, so that it flows naturally and people can read it simply like you would have read in the original. Why did I go to all the trouble of learning Greek? It wasn't because I like to torture myself. <laughs> it wasn't because I had nothing better to do. Yay, let's learn Greek. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, and I have a PhD in science. All right? The reason I did it is because this, folks, is essentially a zip file for the original meaning of the original scriptures. Yes, the English translation is close and it is, has conceptual consistency, but the words have subtle differences that I want to know personally, what was the original, and it gets at this. Conceptually, the Bible is inerrant. Ideas that have been laid down here are true, and they are not with error. They have no error. But when we try and do our human thing, sometimes differences, variation can creep in. And then a lot of very smart people have to look at this and say, do we keep it or not? In the case of many of your translations, King James excluded, the editor said, it's probably best if we don't include it, only to say this is we're trying to preserve the original, what the original was. However, that's why you have study guides, you have Brian Freeman's, you have Google's to explain why was the Pool of Bethsaida important. Okay, wow, that was like a tangent I did not plan to talk about. <laughs> We're done for the day. No, I'm kidding. Okay, <clears throat> there's a lot of good stuff in chapter five here. Um, <laughs> tell me what you get out of this aside from all that scribal stuff. One thing that popped up to me was that uh, he didn't have to go down to the pool to be Yes, yes. Okay, that's a good one. What else do you notice? 
Jesus told him, you know, okay, you're healed, but you need to stop sinning, or if you think your disability was bad, something even worse is going to happen. That's like a red flag of all flags. What does that tell you about your sin and its effect on your life? It's beyond physical. Yeah. But it is physical too, right? I mean, sin has consequences, right? What did you notice about what the, the man who was, was lame, crippled, <coughs> the Greek word chalao, it means to be halted, literally halted. What do you notice when he says, he goes, <coughs> who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? What does he say? I have no idea. The man did not know Jesus, and he didn't know he was the Messiah, and obviously did not have faith in him because he didn't know him. What does that tell you about God's willingness to heal people who don't know him or love him? Can he do it? Absolutely. Absolutely. How awesome is that? How did man didn't know him. Yes. He was leader. Yes. So you can, you can pray for somebody who isn't a believer, and this, to me, gives evidence that the Holy Spirit or God will, it, obviously his discretion and will, make, uh, make an intervention or intercede. How awesome is that, folks? That God can intervene even when you either don't know him or don't love him or even hate him. That he can bless you. You know, it's the old thing. Did God bless Donald Trump? Yeah. Heck yeah. Do I agree with Donald Trump and what he does and do a lot of people? No, not necessarily. Did God bless Barack Obama? 100% yes. Again, do I agree with all the things Barack Obama does and do a lot of people agree with that? No. Do I know if either Barack Obama or Donald Trump are truly saved? I have no idea. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. Did God bless their lives? You better believe it. You better believe it. Just because you are not a Bible-memorizing, church-preaching minister doesn't mean God isn't going to bless you. However, what the real result of this is, what happens in the end? What happens in the end? That's, that's the important part. Folks, it rains on the blessed and, and the sun shines on the wicked, right? Both. There's nothing that says that just because I go to church and I believe and I, and I memorize the frickin' Greek New Testament doesn't mean that I'm going to have a better life than anyone else. It also doesn't mean that someone who hates God and is an atheist or, or tries to bomb synagogues isn't, isn't going to be blessed. However, in general... What happens as a result of this? What happens as a result of God's intervention? Because that is the key part here. He didn't just intervene for no reason. Yeah, he intervened to to ultimately try to change that man's life, yes. you know, for the future, not just for the present on earth. Mm-hmm. This is the key, folks. To change lives to change lives and you notice that initially this man did not realize who Jesus was however later what happens 
Jesus found him at the temple and said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, smack, so something worse may not happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. The man came to know that Jesus was Jesus. It seems to me, though, I mean, not though, it seems to me with, the, with that example, he, he not only knew who Jesus was at that point, but he still wanted favor from the Jewish leaders, ah. and so he quickly kind of scurried off back to them to rat him out. Ah, okay. That's a good call. I like that. Yeah, what was really, he afraid of? He was afraid of man. Yeah. He broke the Sabbath law. Mm-hmm. They called him out on it. They got they got ticked. He's like, no, no, it's all good. I'll tell you all about this guy. Just don't <clears throat> kick me out. It's a good good point. <clears throat> I think it's uh, it's pretty easy part to gloss over. Yeah. <clears throat> but Jesus asked him, do you, do you wish to get well? Yeah. And it says that the man was there for 38 years, which was mm-hmm. about the life expectancy mm-hmm. of the Jewish man yep. in the time. So as far as we can assume that he'd been there all his life. Mm-hmm. And the, the question, do you wish to get well? It's really easy for us to go, well, duh. Yeah. You know, you've been lame for that long. Of course I want to get well. But think of the implications of that. What's he getting? What's that mean? Now he's got to go, what, find a job? Right. Well, where's he going to eat? Okay. He, was, he didn't have anybody that would come help him into the pool. Right. Family had left him okay. destitute. Mm-hmm. Did he have family to go to? So, so it's a pretty deep question. Do you really want it? Because you can just go on life as normal. Ken, this is an excellent point. How, how does this apply to modern day? I... I'm a non-believer. Maybe my family doesn't believe. Maybe my coworkers don't believe. All of a sudden, I am confronted with the choice to follow Jesus, to be a Jesus believer. How hard do you think that is for some people, given what you just said? And, and not only not only in salvation, but me. Yeah. Okay. How, how do I just settle into whatever it is that I'm doing? Yeah. That God, that Jesus wants to heal me from to take me out of into the next thing that he has for me and he's asking me do you want yeah. to do you want to get do you want to move on because what's that mean more responsibility yep. more eyes on me mm-hmm. you know I mean he goes off to the temple right and all of a sudden they're like hey I mean, he finds himself in a pretty precarious situation think of the transformed life a, a butterfly right caterpillar becomes a butterfly that's a completely different organism you completely different food source, completely different uh, ecosystem. Suddenly, you can see the whole world. Maybe the butterfly is a good analogy. You're beautiful. You can fly. You can see the whole world. Suddenly, different predators are after you. <laughs> different things eat caterpillars than eat butterflies. Things that eat caterpillars are things like other, other bugs. Once you get into the air as a bird or as a butterfly, guess what eats you now? Birds. But you've got to die to what you always knew. That caterpillar has to. Excellent, sir. Excellent. Very good. Very good. Okay. Uh, okay. Think. Anything else before we move on? I won't try and trick you anymore. That was just. That. It worked beautifully too. Thank you. Well, I was watching very carefully to make sure yours didn't have it, as you read. So thank you. Sixteen to thirty. Who would like to read sixteen to thirty for me? 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is not the Son of Man, or because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, put yourself in the place of a first century Jew. What this man, who you may never seen or heard of before, all of a sudden shows up in Jerusalem for one of the feasts of the Jews, which we're not sure which one that is. So depending on your Bible, they may think they figured it out, but it's not really clear. This man says to you all the things that he just said in these verses. You're grabbing stones. You, gra- you start grabbing stones. Why? He's just, yeah, he's blasphemed like every other word. He's pretty much, in your eyes, torched everything that you know. Why? Why? Because no man is equal to God. Yes. This is absolutely it. I want us to read these three passages here to get a sense for why the people start picking up stones here. Who would like to read Deuteronomy 32-39 for me? See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Who, who can raise the dead and give life? God and God alone. First Samuel 2-6, who can read that for me? The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. And Second Kings 5, 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That is that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Even men, 
Even kings of Israel and Judah would admit that they were not powerful enough to heal, to give life, to take. They, they may take it physically, but they didn't own life. And they certainly didn't have the power to give it. Hebrew scriptures are clear, folks. Only one being in this entire universe has the power to give and take life, and that is who? God. I said it, God, and God alone. Now, given that, suddenly this guy shows up out of nowhere and starts saying this stuff. You start picking up stones. This is key. This is key for how the author of John sees Jesus of Nazareth. He sees him as what? Giver of life. Which means what? He is God. He is, he is either God or co-equal with God. There, it's such a close association. We really, there's, we can't tease them apart. <clears throat> the son gives life. And he calls him the son. The son gives life. So now he's saying Jesus is co-equal with God, but there seems to be this subtle difference between a father and a son. And here, Jesus refers to himself in his favorite way, which is what? In this passage. Son of man. Son of man. You know, he's, he's stating that he's equal to God and at the same time showing his submission to God. Yeah. It's weird. Who gets that? I don't. I don't know how that works. He's equal, but not. He's the son, but he's also God. I think it shows that each part of the Trinity as its own purpose, if you will, okay. part mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the Trinity. Job description. God has all authority and gives authority to himself, basically, uh -huh. in a different position. Mm -hmm. Yep. My role is this. His role is that. Um... <clears throat> So the son gives life to whom he's pleased. <clears throat> what else did we read in here? I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed from death to life. When he's talking about raising the dead here, what does he mean? He will, he will give the dead life. When he says, I'm going to give the dead life, what is he talking about in that specific context? I believe it's a spiritual death versus uh, a physical. And 25 and stuff is really, you know, goes into that too, where it says, Very, very truly I tell you, a time is coming, and it has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Uh, I mean, to me, that's Satan. They were spiritually dead, and then they became spiritually alive. This is, this is the issue with, with, yes, you need to read the Bible literally. However, However, Jesus tends to talk in, in metaphorical hyperbole. He is great at hyperbole, and I'm sorry if that upsets you. Jesus loves hyperbole. He loves to take an idea and really blow it way up to make his point. Here, I think most people would agree with Rodney in the sense that Jesus is probably talking about spiritually dead. You're spiritually dead because he's going to make them alive. Going to give them life, and what is life in this context? Eternal life. Okay. Salvation. 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 Eternal life. <laughs> what is salvation? Forgiveness of sins. 
Forgiveness of sins. Okay. What else? It's a freeing of you from from the, the sinful nature of your body, and it allows you to truly live. I'm going to say right now, me. Uh, folks, the Greek word for forgiveness of sins means literally to let it go, to release, to free. It's it's liberty. I'm going to let go of what, what has been in the past. That's salvation, folks. That's part of it anyway. You can be freed, released from the chains of your bondage, the sin, your death. Now, as with many things that Jesus says, it does have a double meaning. What else is he talking about here? Is it just spiritual death? There's a language that suggests he went to the center of the earth to free those who were who died before. I'm going to pause that parking lot. That what else does he mean? There's a, there a separation mm -hmm. between him and us because yep. of our sin, and this reconciled that okay. back, back to relationship. But what I'm asking is for us is the salvation that Jesus promises only spiritual? Or is there a physical component to this life? It's only spiritual, isn't it? Is it? So when you die, you're in the grave, you're buried, you're gone? It's eternal life. This is it. What does eternal life mean for you as a Christian? That someday your body will be raised up to join with you in heaven, too. Folks, this is a physical life, too. You will literally rise from the dead one day. Your physical body will rise from the dead. And then what? You'll either rise to eternal life or you'll be in eternal judgment. Folks, the resurrection for you is universal. Every human who has ever walked on this planet will rise again. I'm sorry if that disturbs you. And for those who believe that Jesus is who he says he is and entrust him with your eternal soul, you will live in paradise. You will have a physical life that extends for all time, all ages, for those who don't and who have chosen not to believe in Jesus, what happens to them? Physical torment. It's hell, folks. Hell is real. Hell is punishment. Hell is separation from God. Sorry if that rubs you the wrong way. That's what's promised here. It's truth. No, it is not oblivion. No, it is not you just fall asleep again. Your sins, your choices have real consequences. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm gambling on life. I'm gambling on life. I heard it said, if somebody is having trouble believing in God, that God, Jesus died, and died for our sins, uh, this person said, okay, if you, you have to get up, if you're wrong, if you went to get on a plane, mm -hmm. and they said, there's a 10% chance that that plane will not make it to the destination, would you still get on it? Well, of course not, he wouldn't mm -hmm. get on it, he said. But what if you're wrong, if you don't believe? Mm -hmm. What if you're wrong? I mean, it comes down to what is what, what do you have to lose? I think that's another way to say it, maybe. I don't know if you're saying it that way, Lorna. If I believe that Jesus is who he says he is and I die and it's really oblivion, so what? But if I was wrong and I reject Jesus 
and there is eternal life, that's a far worse risk to take, in my opinion. Call me crazy. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life, will not be condemned. He has, and the Greek is perfect here, he has already crossed over from death to life. As soon as you believe, that eternal life has already begun in a way. You have already joined with the new kingdom, spiritually. How awesome is that? You don't have to wait. It's here. So you can't, um, you know, in verse uh, 23, you can't just believe in God. That's right. You have to also believe in his son. Yes. So speaks to the Jewish faith or any other that have one God that, mm. you know, you argue, argue is yeah. this God or not. But anyway, mm-hmm. you don't believe in Jesus. It's yeah. kind of, my translation uses the term honor. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting, because it says in verse 24, is that what you're saying? Well, even in 23, my uh, NIV. Oh, he is honor. not honor the son, yes. Okay, yes. And, but what I read was believe. Yep. And that is the Greek, it's honor. Timosine. Honor, value. Yep. Value the son. Do you, do you honor and value the son? Right? That's a great point, actually. Which is, the demons believe Jesus is who he says he is. Do they honor Jesus? Do they value Jesus? How do you know if someone, yourself, values Jesus? How do you know that you value anything? How do you measure that extrinsically? time you spend with it. The time you spend. The fruit. The fruit of what comes out of it. If I honor my children, I probably am spending some time with them. I'm probably putting some energy into that system. If I, if I honor and value my job, I probably try and make it there on time. I probably try and do a good job. How you, how you speak of it. Yeah, when you're, when you're talking to others. If you're bashing on it, I don't know that you honor it. Are you bashing on others who honor it? It's interesting that it says not even the father judges, but he gives all judgment to the son. I mean, that, that sounds scary, Yeah, but it's not. Let's talk about that for a minute. I wasn't going to go down this path either. Yeah, <laughs> Bless your hearts, right? Jesus just got done saying a few chapters ago that he does not judge the world. I have not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And now, the very next chapter says, well, two chapters, I am the judge. Does one plus zero equal zero? What does he mean by the math? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Just stop with the math already. We had another passage that very clearly said Jesus was baptizing. Jesus himself was baptizing. And in the very next chapter, if you caught it, we didn't no one called called me on this last week. Says that Jesus specifically was not baptizing people. Does one plus zero equal zero? Mm-hmm. Or what's the answer here? The apostles were baptizing them. Apostles that were with Jesus were baptizing. They were baptizing, they were baptizing too. The point here is this, folks. <clears throat> the same author undoubtedly wrote 
the entire thing. Maybe he didn't write the very end. That's a whole different topic. But almost universally, people agree, one person wrote the entire book of John. Why would that person literally contradict himself one chapter after the next? Or would, would that person? Now this is as a critical thinking human. You have to ask yourself, am I going to subscribe to the people who hate God and just want to point out every flaw that they perceive and say, well, the Bible is bunk? Or do you want to use your brain? In this case, you could argue, and a lot of people, very smart people say, Jesus is making a point that on earth today, in the first century, he has not come to judge the world. He has come to save it. He is coming to offer eternal life for those who truly believe in him. At some point in time and in history, will Jesus judge the world? You better believe it. You better believe it. The end of time, when Jesus returns in glory, was Jesus the military conqueror that was predicted in the Old Testament in the first century? He will be. He will be, but he wasn't at the time. Folks, this is exactly the point here. So much is written that says something that you have to interpret logically and say, in this case, judgment just like baptizing, just like military conquering, it depends on what time you're talking about. At the time, Jesus is not judging anyone. Jesus is saving. But there is a time when he will judge. Just like there was a time when he was baptizing people, but at some point he stopped, probably because there was too many people to handle, so he just let his apostles do it. Just like he was not a military conqueror of Rome in the first century, but one day, folks, he will return to be a military conqueror and king, a physical king. Now, where are the contradictions? I don't see them. <laughs> now, maybe these are all things you never even thought about. I get it. might also, I mean, when the apostles were baptizing, they were baptizing under Jesus' authority anyway. Mm -hmm. So when they do something that's under their, just like as Jesus is saying stuff and doing stuff, he's doing not only right. his own authority, but the authority given to him by God. Right. So in this case, the ideas make perfect sense. The concepts make perfect sense. We've got to be careful how we say, no, no, that word contradicts that word. No, no, never think about it. Okay, keep an open mind. Let's go ahead and finish this out. Verses 31 to 47. Who would like to read that for me? I will. <clears throat> if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the test testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and <clears throat> was shine, shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified of me. Yet you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, 
it is these that testify, testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that, in, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you in Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Reactions. How many of you caught verse 35, John was a lamp that burned and gave light? Maybe caught that. <laughs> Did I write it up here? At this point, John the Baptist may have already been dead. He may have been imprisoned by this point or he may be dead. Um, <clears throat> what else? Remember what I said about hyperbole? How much of this is hyperbole here? You don't know. You don't love him. You don't recognize him. You put your faith in a lot of other things, but yeah. here's what you can really put it in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I heard it said if you don't believe what's in the Bible, you'll believe anything else. You'll believe anything. That's actually a very good statement. I totally agree with that. So it seems like he's talking to, you know, Jewish people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not just Gentiles. Yes. Yes. This is definitely. These are Jews. Why? I'm not even your father. God's not your father. Your accuser is Moses. Why? Why would he call Moses their accuser? He broke that. Well, that's the law that they're they're judging themselves by. So. Got it. Yep. That's it. I'm calling the law, my God. Well, then your accuser is the man who wrote that law, Moses himself. It's interesting how this just ends. Yeah. And if you, you know, look ahead to six, mm -hmm. all of a sudden he's going off to the Sea of Tiberias. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there had to have been interaction after that. I mean, that's quite a speech yeah. that would have to just infuriate all the Jewish leaders. Oh, yeah. And to me, it seems like this particular part was really, you know, it seems like this was engaging the Jewish leaders of the time almost specifically um, just by how he conceptualizes, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're um, trying to find salvation in the laws you know so to me or at least a very pious Jew right so mm -hmm. to me it does kind of feel like a mic drop moment boom out of here Sorry, they were speechless well <laughs> and then they just went back and started plotting instead. yeah and again the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. We don't know. Obviously, more went on. He went home. He probably had a meal. He slept, right? But we don't know what happened. Um, <clears throat> this, your English translations of verse 39 are garbage. Verse 
search the scriptures. It is a command. This is called the Greek imperative. It's not used very often. The imperative means I am commanding you, Angela, read the scriptures that you will know me and you will have eternal life. That is literally what the Greek says there. Say that again. Search the scriptures so that you will know me and you will have eternal life. Search them, command. Search, erinao, meaning, meaning inquire, examine. Folks, all of you here today are, are listening to the command of Jesus himself. Is studying the holy scriptures an option or is it a requirement? I can literally count, I mean, the, the Greek imperative, when Jesus actually commands people to do something, you can count almost on two hands. This is one of them. Read the scriptures, search them, inquire of them, examine them, understand them, so that you will know Jesus and you will have eternal life. It's not an option. So he's telling them, they don't, they don't even know God. Yeah. Everything that you stand for, you don't even know if you, you don't understand what most of you are saying, then you believe. This is exactly it. And he just says that in verse 46, for if you believe Moses, you would believe him. Yeah. Well. Mm -hmm. So what do you really stand on? Nothing. There you go. Maybe tradition. Oh. It's almost as if they're, <laughs> he's looking at them like, like, how much more evidence do you need? You, you chose John. He testified about me. Now here I am saying I am who he said I am. And you still don't believe it. It's hard, folks. We, we get frustrated, probably. I'm sure you do. Why don't people just understand? It's obviously clear to me, right? So I, obviously I know everything. So, you know, everyone else should know this. Um, I was at a funeral a few weeks ago where a, um, a pastor... In, in kind of his normal, you know, what I probably see as his normal pattern was, I just don't understand why people don't believe in Jesus. Are they just stupid or what? And I thought to myself, maybe you could have phrased it a little bit differently. <laughs> Obviously, you know, we think that in our hearts. We probably don't want to verbalize that. But the honest truth is, if you read the scriptures and you truly are inquiring about the truth, it's pretty plain, folks. If you trust God and ask him, please reveal yourself to me, he does respond 100% of the time. At some point, we are making the choice to say, I am choosing not to believe in Jesus. I am choosing to reject him. And that's why I believe on Judgment Day, it won't be a surprise to any of us. In our heart of hearts and our mind, we have chosen whether to believe and follow Jesus or not. Okay. How blessed are we on this side of it that we believe and then all evidence substantiates yeah. that I believe, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about the let's just talk Republican, Democrat. Yep. If I'm on the Republican side, I can find evidence that substantiates yep. my side. And yep. so can the, mm -hmm. the Democrats. Yep. They can see the same thing. So if you're on the non-believing side, it's probably pretty easy. Or if you don't, you don't want to believe who he is, the Jewish leaders back then, yeah. because they had some other mm -hmm. thing in mind. Mm -hmm. That's why I love about the mystery of God. Because mm -hmm. Instead of trying to decide who he is, Thank you very much. We'll see you next week.